If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. There's this lovely thing he wrote in his diary where he said, we know about the man who waves a swastika in the street, and if a man waves a swastika in his back garden, his neighbours will tell us, but we need to know about the man who waves a swastika inside his house. That was Robert Hutton talking about Nazi supporters in Britain during World War II. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. During the Second World War, Not everybody in Britain was hoping for the defeat of fascism. As in many countries, a number of Nazi sympathisers existed, and it was up to the secret services to ensure that they did not damage the war effort. The story of how this mission was accomplished is told by the journalist and author Robert Hutton in his new book, Agent Jack. 
much of which draws on newly declassified documents. I caught up with Robert a little while back and began by asking him how he first discovered this story. In February 2014, I was uh, one of the reporters who was invited to go and look at the new releases of security service files at the National Archives. Every so often they give us a new slice of secret stuff. And there, there are always hundreds of files in these releases. But the one that sort of caught all of our eyes was uh, what was called the Marita Perigo file, which described this previously unknown MI5 operation to trap British fascists. We're talking here, aren't we, about the World, World War II period? Yes, yes. So how big a movement was fascism in Britain at the time of the war? Well, it was very popular in the early 1930s. Uh, you've got to remember you're sort of you're dealing with a sort of post-Great Depression era. There's lots of movements floating around after the First World War, lots of big political ideas. The sort of the idea of a steady state democracy that we have now uh, was, it was not obviously the solution then. Russia was going for communism, it was going for a different form of government. The Germans were going for fascism, they were going for a different form of government. The Italians were going for fascism, that seemed to have delivered stability. So there's lots of, lots of people trying different things in Europe. And lots of people look at fascism and they think it seems very attractive. The Daily Mail was a big fan of Oswald Mosley's black shirts, because there was a sort of idea that, that the country was in a mess, the old way of doing things hadn't worked. And what you needed was a, a strong man to to take control and do what needed to be done, sort of unfettered by parliament and judges and all of the things that, that, that hold people back. Now, that ebbed away as it became clear in Britain what fascism in practice looked like in Germany. And indeed, actually, what fascism in practice looked like in Britain. It was, it was very violent. I think one of the things that's quite hard for us to get our heads around now is that we sort of talk about a, a an angry political culture in Britain now. But in the 1930s, people were fighting at political meetings and uh, both sort of communists and fascists and indeed, you know, more mainstream parties, Labour and the Conservative parties, they had to have people at their meetings to to stop the meetings being broken up by people who wanted to, to start fights. One of the people in my book was thrown to a plate glass window in the aftermath of, uh, of a political meeting. So as people saw that, fascism sort of looked less popular. Um, it enjoyed a resurgence in 1938, around the time of Munich, because Mosley correctly sort of saw that there was a there was a gap in the market for an anti-war party. But by 1939, membership was in the tens of thousands. And what impact did the war itself have on fascism when people then found that the country would have been fighting against fascists? After war is declared, fascism is obviously becomes becomes much less popular, and a lot of fascists uh, start to go underground. In the middle of 1940, when Churchill becomes prime minister and there is an existential threat to the nation, he comes under pressure to to lock Oswald Mosley and leading members of the British Union of fascists up. And after what's known as the Tyler Kent affair, when it was discovered that. Uh, fascists had been involved in uh, smuggling documents out of the US embassy to try to pass them to fascist governments in Europe. Churchill says, right, lock them all up. So the leading members of the British Union of fascists are locked up in the summer of 1940, including Mosley. And at that point, uh, the British Union becomes a, an illegal organisation. But there were too many members to lock up. So not all of its members are locked up and a lot of them go underground and carry on the struggle. 
So how much do we know about these people? What were their motivations? Because at this point, they would be actively committing treason. This is really interesting. And it's sort of, obviously, I mean, they didn't see it as committing treason. They felt that the the, the country was fighting what they often called a Jews war. Their argument was Britain's a natural ally is Germany. And instead, we're being dragged into into destructive war. A lot of the, you've got to remember, there were a lot of memories of the First World War and a, a strong sense that you didn't want to repeat that, that peace was better. And and anyway, you know, sort of why are we fighting over, sort of why are we fighting over Poland, frankly? It's a long way away. And there was also a lot of these people are people who are struggling economically. The book opens with a, a young man called Reginald Windsor who ran a tobacconists in North Leeds. And he is very angry about rival shops and particularly what he sees as uh, cheap shops that are undercutting him and... To him, these are all shops that are run by Jews and they're financed by Jews. So he's angry about Jews, frankly, and he sees them as the enemy. And the, the book actually opens with him going out to uh, to burn down a Jewish shop. And so could you tell us a little bit more now about the secret organisation that went into action to combat these people? In 1940, it is an accepted article of faith for uh, everyone in Britain, from the Prime Minister down, that the reason that Germany has been able to advance so fast through Europe uh, is because it's had people behind the lines helping it, the so-called fifth column. And there are newspaper reports from countries that have been invaded that, that seem to stand this up. So uh, Neville Bland, the British ambassador to the Netherlands, uh, flees the country at the last minute and comes back to Britain with this astonishing tale of how German parlourmaids guided the paratroopers in and cut lines of communication and so on and, and helped the invasion took place. And this is absolutely accepted by everyone that this is what happened. If you look at the films of the period, they all feature a fifth columnist helping out. And so MI5's job is to find the fifth column which they, they set about with great gusto. And by the end of 1941, they have come to the conclusion that there is no fifth column, and there was no fifth column. There were fascists who were organising a bit, but they were all rounded up very quickly, and uh, there is no organised body. Um, Guy Little, one of the senior MI5 people, confides to his diary. But what they keep finding are people who want to be fifth columnists, and this is a bit of a problem for them. So so they keep finding individuals who would love to be helping Germany, but who can't find a fifth column. And Victor Rothschild, who is an MI5 officer who's tasked, his, his official job is head of counter-sabotage, but he's sort of roaming beyond his brief. Um, he goes to Little and says, well, if there isn't a fifth column, but there are all of these people who want to be in a fifth column, Shouldn't we set up the fifth column? And they have this idea that they will install an agent as the Gestapo's man in London and see who comes to him. So this is, I guess, a kind of agent provocateur in a way to try and... They are very, very uh, nervy about that. And that is indeed the problem. So they would, they would argue that, no, it's not an agent provocateur, but what it certainly is is a honeypot um, to see what, what insects come and have a look, if you like. Now, the immediate question was, is this provocation? And one of the the lines that MI5 is walking all the way through the war is how do you how do you infiltrate groups and see what they're up to without 
encouraging them or taking part and what is the difference between surveillance and provocation. And one of the reasons why we only just know about this operation is that by 42, it's clear to MI5 that the Home Office does not support it doing the kinds of things it needs to do. And so MI5 decides the easiest way to deal with this is not to tell the Home Office everything it's doing. And there's this fascinating note. When MI5 in the middle of the war decides that it's not getting the love from Churchill that it would like, it's not getting the attention, they decide to start sending him a monthly sort of summary of what they've been up to. And they have a meeting about what they're going to put in it. And they agree that they're not going to talk about domestic, what they call domestic counter-subversion in there, because they don't want him to mention it to the Home Secretary. They think that Churchill would probably be okay, but they're worried that he will then say something to the Home Secretary and the Home Secretary would say, hang on, how come I don't know about this? This is in the sort of official history of MI5. We know that they left domestic counter-subversion out. But what we didn't know was, well, what what was that domestic counter-subversion? And I think this file, the Marita Perigo file and Victor Rothschild's fifth column operation is a big part of the answer to that question because this was a major domestic counter-subversion operation. And you re- if you read all the reports to Churchill, it's certainly not in there. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. What kind of things did the leaders of the fifth column get the people to actually do? What What were their activities? Right. Well, the, the way that they go about this is uh, Rothschild has an MI5 officer slash agent working for him named Eric Roberts. Now, Roberts is 
an absolutely fascinating character. We always refer to him as a sort of a bank clerk from Epsom. To his neighbours, he lives this deeply uh, sort of ordinary life, commuting in from a London suburb. But he's got a secret life, which is that since the 1920s, he has been a spy. And he was working sort of off the books for MI5 and MI6 during the 1920s. And then in 1934, MI5 asked him to join the British Union of Fascists for them. And he, under the codename MF, became MI5's first man into fascism. And in 1940, he's approached to formally join MI5 to the complete bafflement of his employers at the Westminster Bank, who actually send this letter to MI5 saying, are you sure you've got the right man? We can't can't see anything about this guy that's very special. Why do you want him? And why they want him is that Eric Roberts is masterful at infiltration and deception, and he is brilliant at getting people to like him and trust him. There is a moment quite early on in the book where he has he's gone to Leeds to to try to infiltrate this group of fascists that are there. And after his visit, one of them finds out that MI5 have started opening his post. And then that chap goes to London to try to meet Roberts and goes to the bank where Roberts says he works. And the bank say, oh, no, he left a couple of months ago to join the army. And then he goes to the home address that Roberts gave him and he goes to the house and they've never heard of him there. So when Roberts returns to Leeds a month later, um, he's greeted with great suspicion by this guy, not entirely unreasonably. The MI5 has started opening my post since I met you and you lied about where you work and where you live. So that's suspicious. And Roberts manages in the course of a tram journey from the outskirts of Leeds to the centre of Leeds Roberts manages to talk him round and persuade him to trust him. And sadly, we know almost nothing about that conversation except that he did it. But time and again, you in the files, you can see people trusting Roberts who really shouldn't have trusted Roberts when they had really good reasons not to trust Roberts, but they just couldn't help themselves because they liked him. And so Rothschild says to Roberts, you, under the, the alias Jack King are going to be the Gestapo's man in London. And Roberts is already in touch with, he's, he's, he's in touch with this woman, Marita Perigo, under this alias. But at, at that point, he was pretending to be somebody who would like to help Germany, but didn't know how. And now he, he goes to Perigo and says, actually, that's not true. What I really am is somebody who is in contact with Germany. And I would like you to help me identify British people who'd be willing to help Germany Uh, when they invade. Now, the way they get around the provocation question is uh, that what Roberts tells Perigo is he simply wants names. He doesn't want anyone to do anything. He just wants to know the kind of people who would be useful. Now, the first problem with that is, as one of um, Marisha Perigo's friends remarks to her, that's exactly what MI5 would ask for. And the second bigger problem with it is that Marita Perigo and the people she recruits simply ignore that instruction. So in that case, what do they actually do then? Right, well, they start spying. Uh, they finally, they found a way to connect to Germany. And if Germany thinks that they're going to just sit around passing on other names, Germany's got another thing coming. None of these are sort of are people with top secret classifications or anything, but they do all have access to information. So one of them, one of the very early ones is that one of uh, Perigo's 
contacts watches an amphibious tank trial which is taking place in a reservoir near his home where he swims. And so he just sits on the banks and uh, watches it take place and then files a report on it. Perigo herself, her boss is a... Um, is in the Home Guard and she steals the carbons that sort of contain information about Home Guard operations. But then she brings in, she brings to Roberts a man called Hans Kohout, who is Austrian by birth, but a naturalised British citizen. And Kohout is working at an aluminium foil manufacturing site just outside London. And he is their aluminium foil expert. And that doesn't sound very auspicious, but Actually, aluminium foil is used in all sorts of top-secret projects. So almost immediately, he hands over information about what is essentially um, Britain's first attempt at night vision equipment. And that needs a special kind of battery, and that battery needs aluminium foil, and uh, Kohout is making the aluminium foil for it. So uh, Robert sends this slightly baffled report up to Rothschild saying, right, so they they need lots and lots of tiny discs of aluminium foil. They cut to this specification, they stack them, and it makes some kind of battery. And Rothschild goes to the Admiralty and says, chaps, what's this? And there's this almighty stink goes up in Whitehall to find out how this has leaked and, uh, and what it is. And Rothschild uh, is able to go and sort of reassure them and say, don't worry, the information is safe. But Kohout turns out in his own way to be an absolutely brilliant spy. He's good at talking to people in pubs, even though he's, his English is not great. He's just a sort of a chatty kind of fellow. So a month after senior MI5 people are briefed on the, the specification for the new Mosquito, this plane that will fly fast and uh, allow rapid attacks on, um, on Germany, uh, Kohout gives the same briefing to Roberts and Perigo. So was Roberts and Rothschild able to keep this this organisation going throughout the entire war? Yes. Well, there's a battle. Almost immediately it starts. People within MI5 want it shut down. And there is a, there's a, a, a liberal wing in MI5 who say, I don't understand why we're doing this. And it sort of feels like this might be a bit provocation-y. And aren't we kind of encouraging these people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do? And senior MI5 people, I mean, at the top, they're uncertain, but the, the director of B section, sort of director of counter-espionage and, and counter-sabotage, Guy Liddell, is a champion of it. He His view is, well, it, there's this lovely thing he wrote in his diary where he said, we know about the man who waves a swastika in the street. And if a man waves a swastika in his back garden, his neighbours will tell us. But we need to know about the man who waves a swastika inside his house. And this is Guy Liddell's problem is, how do you find the man who waves a swastika inside his house? And his solution is to let Rothschild's operation continue. So uh, so there is this constant row about what they should do about them. And there's, there's people, every so often somebody pops up and says, look, we should just prosecute all of these people. But Little is a champion. And actually the counter-fascism part of um, Department of MI5, which initially is quite is quite hostile to the operation because it's, it's effectively it's sort of treading on their toes, uh, once they start to see the quality of Roberts's reports, they start to rely on them because they say Roberts is bringing us these people that we just didn't know about. And Roberts has got people everywhere. There's a there's an outfit called the German Club, which <laughs> sounds very suspicious, which was meeting in a, in a German church uh, in London. And uh, after the Sunday morning service, people would, would sort of sit and chat. And these are all German expats who are living at large in Britain. And MI5 and the police have been very worried about the German club because, you know, it's the German club. But it's impossible to penetrate because everybody who's in it 
is already in it and somebody new who popped up would obviously be a spy. But one of the people who's in contact with Roberts is in the German club and she is passing intelligence to Roberts about who might be uh, useful to Germany in the event of war in this club. And so the, the, if you, you can read the German club file at the National Archive and all of it is coming through Eric Roberts' operation. And the, the brilliant thing about this is that the, the German club woman can't reveal that she's working for MI5 because she doesn't know she's working for MI5. You mentioned before the question of whether these people should have been prosecuted or punished in some way. Did that ever happen, either during the war or even after the war? So we get to the end of the war, and while invasion was in some sense a possibility, and uh, and that, that continued to be a, a worry in the minds of MI5 quite late, the fear was that Hitler would either win in Russia or make peace with Stalin, and suddenly all of these battle-hardened divisions would make their way back from that front and uh, mass at Calais. And at that point, Guy Little observed, you'd really want to know who in Britain you could trust. After D-Day, it becomes quite hard to sustain that argument. And there begins to be another internal row about what should be done with these people. But the problem now for people who want to, who are making the prosecution case, is that MI5 has been doing this now for two years and they still haven't told the Home Office. So if you sort of do a prosecution now, the first question you're going to be faced with is, hang on a second, how long have you been doing this and why didn't you tell us? So from that point of view, there's quite an incentive not to. There is also this feeling that, you know, in 1945, after VE Day, nobody really wants to have a conversation about the people in Britain who wanted the other side to win. That's not the spirit of the spirit of 45. And finally, sitting in MI5 in 1945, you don't know who your next threat is going to be but it's plausible that it might be a resurgent fascism and it's plausible that it might be Germany. Germany has started two wars in uh, the last 30 years from where you're sitting, so maybe they'll start another one. And by 1945, British fascism is completely penetrated by Eric Roberts and his network. And uh, at one stage, they're actually considering whether they should get Roberts to set up a new fascist party. And... When you've got that level of information, why blow it all up just to have a prosecution that nobody wants to have? So instead, they decide to um, to keep the operation going. And there is this extraordinary moment in January 1946 when Roberts has a little ceremony in London where he presents Hans Kohout and Marita Perigo with iron crosses, effectively civilian iron crosses, Rothschild has managed to obtain from Germany. Uh, and says, this is to thank you for your efforts during the war and, um, you know, please keep informing us. And who at this point, with Germany completely destroyed, Kohout and Perigo think that they are working for, it's not clear. But Marita Perigo carries on reporting and indeed carries on being paid by MI5 for another couple of years after that. What do you feel this story does to change our understanding of Britain in World War II? My feeling is that we have told ourselves a story about the kind of people we are. And part of the narrative of World War II is that Britain won through strength of character and that there are sort of there are other nations that might might give in to fascism or might succumb to anti-Semitism, but not Britain. Now, what this says to me is that is just clearly not true. You've got 
dozens of names here of people who would have welcomed a German invasion and who certainly got names here of people who would have run death camps. You've, there's, well, there's one moment in the book where uh, they're, they're writing a list of people that they would like Germany to round up and shoot after Germany invades. There's a really sort of horrifying moment where women are describing their own towns being bombed and believing that this bombing is taking place on the basis of intelligence that they have passed on and saying how happy they are that somewhere that they said should be bombed has been hit by a bomb. That was Robert Hutton. Agent Jack, the true story of MI5's secret Nazi hunter, is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And that is all for today. But we will, of course, return in a few days' time with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.